Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Welcome to the History Tricks Book Club. Yay! I guess is what we're calling it. This is a companion piece to our Jane Austen podcast, episode 38. And honestly, you can listen to them independently. So if you haven't heard that one yet, you're still fine to go ahead. Or if you'd like to put us on pause and go back one, you can do that too. I don't know that we're going to be referencing too much. We're not going to give any spoilers away that we talked about it in Jane's life. But we will discuss each of her novels that were published. And so, without further ado, here we go with book number one. Let's start with Sense and Sensibility, written around 1795 at Steventon and not published until 1811, which is a big gap, and it was the first piece that she ever had published. It began life as Eleanor and Marianne, and it was one of those three novels that she carried around as her special treasure. It probably started off in letter form, it was a bunch of letters, and then rewritten into a more narrative. But she didn't rewrite it until she settled in Chawton. She used the pseudonym, A Lady. So she wasn't hiding that she was a lady, but she didn't want anyone to know her identity. Although, her brother Henry blabbed, and more people knew than perhaps she would like to have known. But he was so proud, he just couldn't stand it. For every single Jane Austen we have ever read, Mm -hmm. we have Henry to thank. Because he's the one that ponied up the money to get this publisher to publish the first one and set this whole ball rolling in the first place. So raise your teacup or your wine glass or your Diet Coke to Henry because he's what made this all possible. Yay, Henry. The publisher actually, even though he was paid, he said, look, if I lose money on this, you guys are going to have to pay me back. It was part of her contract. And Jane actually squirreled away some money just in case that happened. But the first edition sold out in 20 months. So Yahoo. So let's do a 30-second plot summary. One sister wears her heart on her sleeve. The other keeps hers buttoned up tight. But with nothing more than brains and heart, they manage to marry in Regency England. The end. So now let's dig into the plot a little bit. So the curtain opens, and the Dashwood sisters are in trouble. Their papa has just died, and since the terms of, you know, our favorite thing, the entail, prohibit him from breaking up his estate in any way, he can't leave what he wants to leave to his daughters and has to leave everything to their half-brother, this easily controlled man married to a termagant, which is my favorite vocabulary word of the day. That's an excellent word. (laughs) Try to use it in a sentence later today. Oh, I will. I have to look it up first. <laughs> but you know Fanny Dashwood. No, yeah, no. That's a term again. Yes. From the very second of Papa's death, the Dashwoods are nothing more than guests in their brother's house. Can you imagine that? And his wife is not exactly very generous. She's making things so horrible that the girls and their mother start casting about for somewhere to live within their desperately reduced means, since Brother Dear cannot seem to help them out with one red cent. No, and even the conditions of what Papa has suggested that they be entitled to, Fanny manages to whittle it down to next to nothing. And he agrees. That is a beautifully done piece of writing. So that's probably my favorite scene where Fanny talks him down. He has this generous idea. She talks him down to actually... They'll be more able to give you something. That's right. It is a brilliant... It doesn't even take very long. He's not the boss of that house. No. 
Eleanor, the eldest, is the sense of the title. She's proper and prudent and a realist, and she keeps Mama's feet on the ground. Mama is prone to be a little uh, romantic and unrealistic. And Marianne, the middle daughter, is the sensibility of the title, who takes after Mama. <laughs> Romance, emotion, let it all hang out. Be true to yourself. She's constantly irritated by the strictures of society and also of the reduced income. She's the one that just can't seem to take this at all. She's not rolling with the punches very well. Now, there is a third sister, Margaret, who travels along with them. She has a, a bit of a part in, in the story, but not as much as Eleanor and Marianne. Correct. Their sister-in-law, Fanny Dashwood, has one redeeming quality. However, it's her brother, Edward Ferrers. Edward and Eleanor immediately take to each other in a quiet, proper, yet obvious way. Now, Edward is very similar to Eleanor in that he keeps things controlled inside of him. He doesn't show his emotions very much. So you can imagine these two people who aren't overly romantic. It's very controlled. But sister-in-law loses her crap. Her oldest brother must be glamorous and run in the fashionable circles and marry a title and marry cash. Girl, have you seen him? Do you know him? He is an introverted <laughs> dude. This is not your prize, brother. Is it a relief or a curse? I don't know. But one of Mama's cousins, of some degree, maybe even a first cousin, which would be something we can relate to, but he has a little house to let her live in at no cost called Barton Cottage, and it's on the grounds of his estate called Barton Park. Once they move there, the people that they're spending time with would be the cousin John, his wife and mother-in-law, and his friend, Colonel Brandon, who is a good-natured, older bachelor. So they settle in, and instead of 30 servants, they now have two servants, but somehow find the courage to go on. Oh, brave. Although Marion is still moping. She can't handle this adjustment. And the old bachelor is very attracted to Marianne. There is no chemistry from her side, but he, you know, from her side, he's old and boring and steady and... She's very irritated that she is surrounded by people who think he's a good match for her. And she's like, seriously, this is not even close to my ideal. And then who walks in? Her ideal. One day the Thunderbolts! <laughs> Swelling of violin music here. A rainy day, a sprained ankle, a handsome man leaps off his horse and delivers Marianne from danger. Dreams do come true. <gasps> Yay! And this dashing man's name is Willoughby, and he lives nearby, and she is head over heels for him. Well, he loves poetry, and he loves reckless disregard for convention. Oh, Willoughby, Willoughby, <laughs> so perfect in every way. Yes. He is hot in the 1995 movie, FYI. Yes. We'll talk about that later. So as Willoughby and Maryam shock the locals with their deviant behavior, Eleanor keeps the thought of Edward kind of constant and secret but it means the same to her as it does to Marianne love she just expresses it differently yeah yeah a new arrival Lucy Steele ignorant and vulgar informs Eleanor quite gleefully that she has been engaged to Edward for years which is a total smackdown and Marianne gets the smackdown of her life when Willoughby suddenly bails on her and marries someone else what? Nobody understands that. Marianne has all the luxury, though, of freaking out and flailing and getting sympathy and olives and people being kind to her, but Eleanor has no one to tell. 
No one has any inkling that she has turmoil going on inside, and I think she's the more to be pitied of the two of them, because she has to keep it all inside. She has no outlet at all. Colonel Brandon does come to Eleanor, and he is relieved that it didn't work out between Marianne and Willoughby, because he tells Eleanor that Willoughby was a real cad. He'd gotten Brandon's adopted daughter pregnant, dumped her, and then went off to get engaged to a super-rich socialite. So he knew, now Eleanor knows, what Cad Willoughby was, even though Marianne is still very upset. Marianne may have had a lucky escape, but Colonel Brandon does admit that Willoughby did care for Marianne and probably would have married her if it hadn't been for the money. Ah, the money. The money. Now, Edward's mother, speaking of the money, finds out about Lucy Steele and disinherits him because she wanted her son to marry a wealthy socialite and he is not playing the game properly at all. Enter Colonel Brandon again. He has a tender spot for Edward's position. It's an echo of his past. He was not allowed to marry his true love because of money and because of, you know, her rank and everything. And he offers Edward a post, you know, a living, a clergymanship. And now Eleanor is forced to become the conduit by which Edward is told he now has enough money to marry Lucy. Can you imagine the composure she has? It is like iron. Mm-hmm. Holy crap. Marianne ends up indulging in such hysterics that she ends up hystericalizing herself into a serious illness. This is taking indulgence too far. We're all meant to take from this, I think. Colonel Brandon is a constant presence. He's quietly helping, fetching Mama, being someone to lean on. Um, good for him. He's shown to be an upstanding citizen. And then Dirtbag Willoughby shows up. He is such a good word. He comes and confesses to Eleanor that he was a dirtbag. Eleanor sort of forgives him because there's nothing he can do at this point. He can't marry Marianne. He's out of the picture completely. So a little hocus pocus, a little misunderstanding, a little jiggery pokery, and ta-da! Lucy ditches Edward. Why? Well, Lucy had her eyes set on some more serious Ferrer's coin than he's able to than Edward's able to produce. So she elopes with his younger brother, Robert, who now has all the money. So Edward, free at last, free at last, flies to Barton to marry Eleanor. And Marianne, realizing that romance is one thing, but steadiness is another, ends up with Colonel Brandon, and the curtain comes down. The end. Now, here's some reactions I have to this story. The ending for Marianne bothers me so much, almost like she got tossed to Colonel Brandon by Jane Austen. You know, thank you for being so useful as a plot device, Colonel Brandon. Here's your reward. This will be Marianne. And that she has to learn to love him. Like, she learns to love him. She doesn't have that same spark that she had for Willoughby. Yeah. I mean, spark is good. Reliability is good. It's probably conventional for the times. Maybe that was... But it's it. like... you could relate... I don't know. It's like Marianne has to change her whole personality to make the story balance. So Eleanor learns to express herself. That's the left side. And then Marianne learns to control herself on the right side. I don't know. I hope Marianne's happy. You can see Eleanor and Edward, like, happily setting up shop in the rectory. Somebody's wearing an apron. Someone deals with the chickens. And Mm -hmm. they sit by the fire. Someone's knitting. Someone's writing a sermon. You can see how that all ends up. Yeah. But I just have to hope for Marianne. Her husband does love her, so. He loves her, and maybe, you know, he lets her... Because she's grown up, which really is what happened. She grew up and learned to control her emotions a bit. Maybe he lets her be playful at home, 
and spontaneous and appreciates that quality of her. Well, he told Eleanor that he didn't want her to give up her fire and her romantic mm-hmm. notions because he knew of a young lady who was forced out of that at too early of an age. So it's a good match in that regard. So let's hope he sticks to it and he doesn't get tired of it. So I hope it all worked out, Marianne. I hope you're good. I am not, however, alone in thinking Marianne's ending is unsatisfying. The Duchess of Devonshire's sister mm-hmm. agreed with me and said that that was a vor- very poor if she didn't approve of that <laughs> ending. <laughs> also, Princess Charlotte, who we talked about before, adored Marianne, but complained, well, Marianne's not, or bragged, Marianne's not as naughty as me. No. no she Marianne didn't. was pretty naughty for the time, but... So was Princess Charlotte. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, this book was written, at least kind of fleshed out, when Jane was in her teens mm-hmm. and published at long last when she was 36. And that's a long time for revision and tinkering. So I think Jane kind of meant every word of this. Right. And the characters were teens at the in the story. Although you think of the 1995 Emma Thompson movie when Emma Thompson was not, you know, 19 years old. But, but when you produce the movie, you can cast yourself as a movie. Right. And you produce it and you write it. So let's talk about the movies, since we keep referring to the movies. There's the 1995 Emma Thompson Kate Winslet version, which was directed by Ang Lee. It's beautiful. It's definitive as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Others disagree with me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's the first time I ever saw Kate Winslet. Ever. In anything. Oh. I don't know if that's a common experience, but and Emma Thompson's in it. And Snape with his amazing, it's... gravelly, snapey voice. Uh, and Mr. Willoughby is married to Emma Thompson. My goodness. Well, if you're going to cast the hunkiest guy you can think of. My goodness. (laughs) So that, as far as I'm concerned, is the definitive one. Now, many disagree with me and say that the 2008 BBC is the definitive. I find it wanting. Because some of the, well, now, some of the forgotten characters came back. You've got Lady Middleton back. Mm -hmm. Where was she during Emma Thompson's movie? Yeah. She was not there. The Little Middletons. Which I like to say. Uh, Lucy Steele's sister. I mean, it's truer to the text, but I'm sorry. That 1995 one reigns supreme as far as I'm concerned. It's beautiful. BBC does text loyalty. Yes. Very well. We had seen that there was another version. It's the 2011 Prada to Nada. It's streaming on Netflix. So a couple listeners had written that we should watch it. And I did. I watched the whole thing. It sort of stays true to the story. Wilmer Valderrama, who I can't help but think of as Handy Manny, um, is pretty hunky (laughs) as the Colonel Brandon role, but uh, it's a nice twist to the story. The acting is pretty crappy, but I watched it. It was okay, and it's free streaming on Netflix. You don't have to wait for the DVD, so give it a shot. As to books... Uh, I should say now, all of Jane Austen's books are available for free on LibriVox. So we won't be recommending any of those books, because that's just a given. Right. You can get a hold of those for absolutely nothing, and they're read by very good readers. So we'll pass that. What we're going to talk about is perhaps uh, homages, or completions, or sequels, really. I've got two. I have Suspense and Sensibility, or First Impressions Revealed by Carrie Bibris. That's got a lot of good recommendations. I haven't read it, but um, it does have many, many stars on Amazon and uh, a lot of buzz on the message boards about it. Then also there is Sense and Sensibility and Sea Monsters. If you're a purist, this whole series is not for you. No. It is a companion to Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, which is kind of a um, tongue-in-cheek 
interpretation of Jane Austen and a monster movie mashed together. It's hard to explain. Give it a go if you're not a purist. If you are, stay far, far away. The poor thing will be thrown across the room in a few pages. (laughs) So sense and sensibility. The publisher was so eager to ride this wave, this popular wave, that he grabbed a hold of and paid for... The very next thing available from this pen. Luckily, she had things in the cabinet, in the traveling writing box, Mm -hmm. to give him. And what we end up with is the second book, Pride and Prejudice. And some may say the best book by Jane Austen. This is definitely the most famous, Pride and Prejudice, written around 1796 at Steventon and published in 1813. Jane began this when she was just 21 years old. I mean, she's so young, but it was also the first novel that was ever rejected. So sad. Yeah, her papa, unbeknownst to her, had sent it off to a publisher and he sent it back basically immediately. Pretty much unread. Like, nah. No thanks. Not, not for me. But good luck in your search. Yeah, I, I think it's how the letters all come. It was formerly titled First Impressions, but the year that it came out, several other works came out entitled First Impressions. So there was a name change. And the name, Pride and Prejudice, probably came from Fanny Burney's Cecilia, in which Pride and Prejudice are in capital letters three times in the last page. So I would guess that's probably where it comes from. What are the chances of... Well, it could also be um, a branding issue. I mean, they do it a lot now. A lot You'll find authors use a lot of the titles that are, sound similar, have the same number mm-hmm. of words. So if Sense and Sensibility was a successful book, Pride and Prejudice will also be successful. Very clever. Yeah. So now let's go into a 30-second plot summary. It's been called the divine comedy of love and is, in fact, the basis for every romantic comedy that follows. The end. Mr. Bennett, a gentleman farmer with 2000 a year, is plenty able to keep a cook and a whole house full of servants, but one thing he can't keep is his estate. Mr. Bennett has five daughters, and without a son... His estate has to make a lateral pass to a male cousin, and his daughters will be left with nothing unless they can escape their fate by marrying. And marrying seems to be the obsession of Mrs. Bennet. She does have five daughters that she needs to marry off. Thus, when a rich bachelor moves in nearby, there is great excitement in the land, especially from Mama. Wealthy, young, and unmarried Charles Bingley has rented Netherfield Park, which is in the same area where the Bennets live. And that sends the whole Bennet household into a feverish mating tizzy. Well, Mr. Bingley, so perfect in every financial way, turns out to be an amiable, friendly guy. And he sure has eyes for the eldest daughter, the beauty of the family, Jane. But his wingman, Mr. Darcy, even richer, is a big downer. He snoots and insults. And irritates everyone all around him, not the least of which is Lizzie, daughter number two, our heroine, intelligent, popular, satirical, and not prone to take crap from anyone, a model for us all. That's right. When Darcy refuses to dance with Elizabeth, 
at the ball, she's pretty much set her opinion of him right then and there, and it is not favorable. The girls meet Mr. Wickham, a handsome soldier who's been wronged by the above Mr. Darcy. Worse still, Darcy is instrumental in breaking up Jane and Mr. Bingley. Mr. Bingley being one of those men always influenced by the last person to talk to him. Also on her doo-doo list is her very annoying cousin, the clergyman Mr. Collins, who's so smarmy you just want to punch him. He is going to get the estate eventually, and it would make sense to marry him. It would make sense for any of those girls to marry him financially. But seriously... He's an idiot. And you wouldn't do it. You would not do it either. None of no. you. But <laughs> he's an idiot who wants to marry one of the Bennett sisters, and he wants to marry Elizabeth. Because they wanted to marry Jane. Right, but, but she was already taken. Ear. Yeah. So he just moved to the next one. Whatevs. <laughs> but Lizzie turns down his weak Alec proposal of marriage, so he simply goes down the road and asks Lizzie's friend, Charlotte, who he's spoken to maybe twice. And away they go. But Charlotte's happy because she needs to marry. She's yeah. of an age and of a financial situation that she needs to marry as well. And Mr. Collins doesn't give her the creeps, so. Or if he does, his the situation its more appealing. It's good enough. Cheers the creeps. In the most awkward house party ever, Lizzie goes to stay with this new couple, who live in a parsonage on the estate of a personage called Lady Catherine. Lady Catherine Dwug. Surprise, <laughs> surprise. Lady Catherine is Mr. Darcy's aunt, or aunt, as Susan would say. Thrown together again by circumstance. Oh, Jane Austen. He just happens to be her aunt, and he just happens to visit at the same time. Mm-hmm. So what does he do? <laughs> In his eloquent way, he stammers out a proposal to Elizabeth. Yeah, not awesomely. Mm. No. It was... Slightly less awkward than her first proposal, and Mr. Darcy of the 30000 a year gets shot down to his complete and utter shock. She hates him. For Wickham's sake, and mainly for Jane's sake, what he did to her beloved Jane, to say he's flabbergasted is a mild word. He does clear up the Wickham thing. Wickham is a liar and a fortune hunter and an all-around rogue, but he can't explain the way the Jane episode, and she thinks he is a dirtbag. I'm not going to marry you, therefore. <laughs> she Lizzie's getting really good at turning down proposals. Good for her. She ends up, somewhat improbably, near his estate. Her aunt and uncle have taken her on a trip to kind of cheer her up, because she seems a little head up and a little turmoil mm-hmm. has been in her life. So um, it's very common at this time for housekeepers to take in a little extra income. If their employers aren't home, it's perfectly respectable if the people look nice enough and respectable mm-hmm. to give them a nice tour of the public areas of the house. Um, and so they take a tour. Um, yeah, improbably. She's near his estate and runs into Darcy again. Who's supposed to be gone. And he just happens to come back. I know. Sorry. I'm sorry, Jane Austen. So when the family is plunged into despair because the real dirtbag in the question, Wickham has run away with Lizzie's youngest sister, Lydia, who is barely 16. Rumination. Scandal. They're in the back of the van, people. (laughs) Secretly, Mr. Darcy handles the problem, mostly by throwing money at it, because that's all that talks to Wickham, and makes Mr. Wickham marry his freshman girlfriend. (laughs) Yikes. It's the only way to patch it up. But he sets him up, he gives him a commission, he pays his salary, he pays for the wedding. Darcy's the guy. 
And he secretly fixes the Jane and Binkley situation, too. Dun, 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 dun. Yay! Only Lizzie finds out about all of it. He is so good. She has been blind. And her feelings about him go through this big change, but it's too late. Really. I mean, it's too late. But all of a sudden, Lady Catherine shows up and is a bully. And it's so bewildering. She's ordered not to marry Mr. Darcy. I didn't didn't know that was in the works, Lady Catherine, but thanks for that. And you know Lizzie well enough to know that this kind of crap won't fly. No. He asks her again, and it is true love. Yay! Lives have been ruined by that scene. (laughs) Cue unattainable romance music. (laughs) Well, they both changed. Mrs. Bennet also gets her victory in that she's now married off three daughters of the five in very short order. And we presume they live happily ever after. Wealthily ever after. The end. I used to think that Mrs. Bennet was this comical, irritating person. Like, Mary, Mary, Mary! But really, if Papa is not going to get on it and arrange something or work hard or even be concerned, then what is she supposed to do? He'll be dead! He won't care! But then, the girls have nothing. And they have no skill to be a governess because nobody has paid attention to their education. So if they don't get married, they'll have to be paid companions or what? She is comical and over the top. Yeah, but that's... What else is she going to do? That's her goal. She gave birth to these babies. She needs to get them off in the world, and that's her only way to do it. Really, she gets it done. If she hadn't made Jane go on horseback in the rain and get that cold, then this whole thing never would have started. That's true. So good for her. Sometimes those plans come true. They do. What are you going to talk about? Well, the fact that people, the sisters are all out at the same time. Like Jane's life in the country, it's just not as formal. Mm -hmm. But to the proper people, like Lady Catherine Dubourg, there's a system. Right. The oldest one goes out, gets married. Then the next one comes, gets married. But it reflects nicely the way Jane grew up in the country, where it's like, if the daughter's old enough to put up her hair, everyone there knows her. Just, it's the same old thing. Just put up your hair. You're out. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, like, it's more casual. It's very much yeah. more casual. Yeah. I'm always frustrated by the lack of openness. Jane and Bingley could have just said what they felt, but they couldn't, because it wasn't done. But in modern days, you could have just been like, you're so cute, but you could have Facebooked it, or you could have told your friend to tell them... But it's, there's so much that goes wrong because people can't just say what's on their mind. Don't you think? Yes. I think that that happens a lot in contemporary society, too. Oh, see? I'll just say I it. don't know. It's been a long time since I dated. I don't know. <laughs> it takes a while to figure it out. And as far as Elizabeth and Darcy go, they both had to change. They couldn't be stuck there the way they were. It would never have worked. Right. So even though there might have been some sort of initial attraction, they needed to make that internal adjustment before they could make it a successful marriage. Yeah, Darcy's temper needed to be open a little bit. He needed to let people in a Mm -hmm. little bit more than he was and not be such a snob, kind of, too. (laughs) (laughs) It is admitted. (laughs) Well, it was how he was raised. Because if you think about it, Wickham's now his brother-in-law. That can't be something that makes him so happy. No. Maybe they don't come home very often. Maybe he gets killed in a war. Ooh. I mean. Lydia, a widow at 17 with money. Yeah. That's a dangerous proposition. (laughs) Um, 
Also, people are often fascinated by Charlotte Lucas. Charlotte, who took the option Jane didn't. So she married for safety, but not for love. And she married at 27, the same age that Jane rejected that proposal that would have made her life secure. Mm. Very interesting. There's, I'm sure there's fanfic about this, as a matter of fact. I do want to say that we did talk about this in the uh, Jane Austen podcast about Mark Twain. He's talking about this particular book when he says, Every time I read Pride and Prejudice, I want to dig her up, meaning Jane Austen, and beat her over the skull with her own shin bone. To this I say, every time, every time. So you didn't just read Pride and Prejudice once, Mark, Samuel. You read it several times. Susan calls Mark Twain on his BS. So maybe, maybe he liked what she did, he just couldn't relate. Or maybe he, he liked to pretend to be contrary. That sounds like Mark Twain. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Like those pipsters that say, oh, well, that's, you know, if people like it, then I don't. Maybe he just keeps going back and going, what is it? What is it? What is it about Jane Austen that's lasted this long? Well, She's talking about boring things, walking in the rain, and people's emotions. There's nothing happening. There's no action. That's true. <laughs> Well, um, Lizzie is by far the fan favorite, I would say, and the Lizzie Bennet Diaries proves that, if nothing else. They just reached 100 episodes on YouTube. That's right, and if <laughs> we really love it when you guys suggest things to tie in, but so many of you suggested Lizzie Bennet Diaries, it was, you must all watch it. <laughs> yeah, she's the model for so many future heroines. This book, I think, is the prototype for all future <laughs> romantic comedies misunderstandings, unspoken words, you know, blah, 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 blah. So let's just talk about movie adaptations. Okay. The 2005 version starring Kira Knightley, uh, we are going to cover in a separate movie cast. I will say one thing, it is my favorite adaptation. Okay. But. <laughs> There's also a 1995 TV miniseries, and that's the one with Colin Firth as Mr. Darcy, where we all fell in love with Colin first. Well, there's this gratuitous wet shirt Darcy scene that set the nation of Britain on its ear and directly caused the sensation called Bridget Jones's Diary, which started out as a newspaper column, turned book, turned movie, and in a meta self-referencing twist, the guy who played the Darcy that inspired the book played Mark Darcy in Bridget Jones. Incestuous. Twisted. <laughs> But, who could but he did it so well. He did. So that was good. Um, there is a 1940 version starring Greer Garson and Laurence Olivier. It is stilted in an early movie way. It's like you're seeing a high school play. <laughs> With apologies to high school plays everywhere because I don't even think it's that good. I can't get behind it. Um, however, there is an interesting fact about this. It was supposed to be filmed in Technicolor. It was supposed to be a grand thing. In fact, the tagline was, brace yourself for this, the greatest comedy of the screen, five gorgeous beauties on a madcap manhunt. <gasps> that doesn't really sound like the Pride and Prejudice we know. What? <laughs> <laughs> but here's the funny thing. All of the Technicolor film had been taken to film Gone with the Wind. All the Technicolor film in existence was used up, and so they had to film it in black and white. And I think it's because Vivian Lee did not get cast as Lizzie Bennet. It is the universe's way of exerting revenge. <laughs> so that's the only thing about this Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> she was rejected. Yeah. 
Okay. Because they hadn't seen Gone with the Wind yet, is why. That's, that's what I think. Yeah, she would have been great. But she got to be Scarlet. I mean... I guess we can't be Scarlet and Lizzie Bennet. I mean, who... I mean, how many people seriously have heard of the Greer Garson version? Vivian Lee has. Yeah. <laughs> that's about it. Also, the clothing is the wrong era. I know, I was just going to say, the clothing is... The, the, the costuming is wrong. It's so distracting. I didn't even get through it. Well, it's wrong because the producers wanted more glamour, and Regency mm-hmm. costuming is not glamorous enough for Hollywood. No. So they just changed the past. Why not? Who cares? No one's going to know. <laughs> okay. Hey, did you know there was a Wishbone episode? Where... Wishbone? Did you ever watch? Did your kids? No. I've never even heard of Wishbone. Oh, it was a PBS show. It's with a Wishbone is a dog, and he <laughs> goes back into It's actually very well done. Huh. You can find it, but the dog played the role of Darcy. Well, there is a great departure called Bride and Prejudice, where Lizzie's name has become Lalita, and Darcy is an American named Will Darcy, and a haughty, intolerant, ignorant American. Uh, there's much dancing. It's Bollywood. It ends with riding on elephants. Ah, this is actually a cult favorite, Bride yeah. and Prejudices. Yeah, and it, it, the DVD is available on Netflix. There should be a drinking game associated with that movie. I don't know if there is, but... I'm just not going to say anything about that. <laughs> so, as to books, there are more... Oh, wait, you forgot a very important one, Beckett. Lost in Austin. Didn't you love it? I did not love it. It's a four-part series. It is available on Netflix. It's a modern-day Amanda, who is a devoted Jainite. She trades places with Elizabeth Bennett through some sort of time travel... Dimension travel portal. In her bathroom. Yeah. Um, it's pretty to look at. It's, it's an a, interesting premise. It's a good concept, but I have to tell you, the fact that she never changes her hair is so distracting to me. I can't... <laughs> what is it about me and packaging? Because I think that's why I like the Kira Knightley version. Maybe. Better. The packaging is just better. And I'm like, you're, nobody's going to insist she put up her hair. Nobody's going <laughs> to... It's very strange to me. That's a very valid point. So anyway, so there's, there's that. So feel free to watch it. And Bridget Jones' Diary. I love that movie. Yeah. It's good. So watch that. The fight scene between the two In the middle-aged white guys yeah. rocks the party. Just play it over and over. <laughs> it's really good. Okay. So as to books, there are more sequels and fanfic based on Pride and Prejudice than any other. Oh, the list is extensive. The aforementioned Bridget Jones' Diary. There's a series that I read. Now, keep in mind, it's light. It's it's a light thing. I liked them. I read them. They're wrecked. So that proves I've read them in assorted locations. The pages are all ripping out. Mr. Darcy's Daughters by Elizabeth Aston. Purists may or may not like him, but it basically, um, Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth have five daughters, and these are their stories. Um, and then there's another one called... Charlotte Collins by Jennifer Beckton. So what did happen to Charlotte Lucas? How did she adjust to her new life? I'm kind of intrigued by that. And it shouldn't interfere too much with the rest of the story because mm. really Charlotte's off stage right. for most of it. And then there's the famous Pride and Prejudice in Zombies, which takes Pride and Prejudice and, while keeping most of the original text, inserts a whole other zombie subplot into the... It's really cleverly done. Who would have thought of it? Now, I will tell you the cover of that paperback is so disturbing that my son, who is now eight, will not have it in the house. So we are going to give it away. And we'll give away the sequel, too. Why not? We'll give them both away. They are my books, so they're not in the best of shape. Yeah, they're used, but that's okay. But they're not wrecked like the other things. They're not, there's no pages missing. They haven't been wet or left anywhere. 
Um, they're reasonably good condition, but the cover is so disturbing. I've had to keep it in the trunk of my car. It's been there for like a year and a half. So, <laughs> so we're going to figure like out to win this wonderful prize. <laughs> we're going to figure out a way. We'll post it on the Facebook page. A way to enter. But yeah, we'll give those away. Sure. Yeah, let's do that. There is um, graphic novel versions of Jane Austen's books, and nice. I have to say that I did read a couple of them because you know I love a good graphic novel. They're Marvel graphic novels. They're written by Nancy Butler. This one was illustrated. They have different illustrators, although they seem to have the same writer. Um, this one was illustrated by Hugo Purris, whose name I'm sure I am mispronouncing. The illustrations are more like, they look more Spider-Man-like. Ooh. In another novel that we'll talk about later, it was more Scooby-Doo-like illustrations. So. <laughs> but it's it was very good, kept to the story. It, it's a great way to read a classic without getting bogged down with the language, just to understand the concepts and the storyline and the characters. Yeah, my uh, little son likes to read Swiss Family Robinson in a graphic novel version. Yeah, I think, you know what, when we did Frankenstein, that was like the first graphic novel that I had really read, and mm-hmm. I thought, oh, this is kind of cool, why mm-hmm. not? So, my librarians know that <laughs> I'm eclectic. <laughs> So, um, I guess I'll leave you with a favorite quote from this oh, book. Oh, I have a favorite quote from this book, too. Okay. What's you your do favorite? yours. My favorite quote from this book is, You must learn some of my philosophy. Think only of the past as its remembrance gives you pleasure. Oh, that's good. I'll say mine for when we do the movie cast, because it's in the movie. And so that's it for Pride and Prejudice. And that's all we have time for today. So that's books one and two. And we will cover books three through six in subsequent podcasts. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. For show notes, links to the things we talked about today, or to donate, please visit us at thehistorychicks.com. Follow us on Twitter at thehistorychicks, with an X, or like us on Facebook without an X. If you'd like us in real life, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on iTunes. Our music comes courtesy of Music Alley. Visit them at music.mevio.com. There is beauty all around When there's love at home There is joy in every sound When there's love at home Peace and plenty here above Smiling sweet on every side Time doth softly, sweetly glide When there's love at home Love at home Love